there's a couple of things I heard you say today. Uh, I heard you talk about the need to find complementary talent, whether it's in a co-founder or an executive team. Um, uh, I, this idea of you know committing to never raise again, I think, is uh, uh, a lost art uh, of business, and uh, you know that's definitely something to think about. Uh, know why you're doing something when you're starting a business. What's your big why will help sustain uh, the drive. Uh, committing upfront to the investment you're willing to put in into something that discipline is key. Uh, I like this idea of in the early days, focus on being focused uh, before you start pursuing other opportunities. The idea that this manager 360 is a is a leading indicator on uh, the sustainability of a team or a business and the need for a CEO or co-founder to find inspiration uh, in different things and bring that back to the business. Uh, thanks for joining another episode of Talks with T. I'm uh, humbled to have uh, Rabia Ataya uh, join us today, the co-founder and CEO of Bait. Uh, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Relax. I'm. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here and I'm looking forward to this. Thanks. Uh, I've, you know, I think when we started Bezat, you you were one of the first people, Talal and I came to visit uh, as part of the endeavor process, but then just as mentorship. And so, I've always thought of you as kind of the four, one of the forefathers of the uh, tech industry. Commentary on my gray hair. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to caveat it has nothing to do with the age. It has to do with the, the pedigree. Um, so I know that you've been a trailblazer for a lot of us in the region. So first off, I just want to say thanks a ton for helping all of us believe we can build something meaningful. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm sure you've uh, told the story of bait a million times. And so we're going to avoid telling the full story sure. today. Uh, why did you start the company? Why did you feel a need to start a company? Yeah. So I started my entrepreneurial journey when I was 25 years old with another company called Infofort. Yeah. And Infofort was a, is a, a beautiful business. Yeah. It's a, it was a business that got cash flow positive immediately mm. it didn't require an external financing it was throwing out 50 percent net margins it was expanding across the region um, the business infofort was in was records management so it mm. was hard copy document storage the mm. the basic thinking was our cities were increasingly getting more urbanized um, office real estate was expensive People needed to keep their documents for legal and financial reasons, and they needed a safe, secure, accessible, and cost-effective place to keep those documents. Mm. And so we became the first such storage facility. Mm. And that business grew very, very quickly. It actually exceeded my expectations. Um, but there were a few challenges with the business. Uh, obviously, the first challenge was one of finding talent. Um, and I always found that to be a bit crazy, um, particularly um, in line with the fact that everywhere I looked, there were young people across the region who mm. were complaining that they couldn't find jobs and mm. they were very smart, uh, very talented people. Um, and similarly, all the employers were complaining, just like I was, that I couldn't find the talent. So I realized that the mismatch was primarily 
an informational mismatch. Mm. And so I guess the, the root problem started off with a personal need. Mm. Um, and then another personal need was the fact that while my initial business Infofort was highly self-enriching, I didn't feel I was contributing much to society. It was a very B2B type of business. Mm. Almost no one knew about it. Uh, it didn't have to employ a lot of people. It was throwing a lot of cash. Um, but to me, what mattered was I felt I really wanted to do something that had social impact and that would really touch people's lives. Um, and so why I started it was basically um, in early 2000, I was on a flight back from the US to the region. I picked up uh, Wired magazine, which was still in its nascency back what, then. What year is this, roughly? 2000, so okay. the start of 2000. Okay. Um, and in Wired magazine, there was probably a an article, a part of a column, and it wouldn't have exceeded two inches. I, I maintained this article for many, many years that mentioned in 2000 that there was a startup in the US called Monster, which was basically uh, creating an employment marketplace, which allowed employers and job seekers to get together directly and put the magazine down. Just that haunted me throughout the flight. And by the time I landed uh, in Dubai, I realized that this was what I wanted to do. I really felt that it's a problem that was meaningful, it was significant, it had massive impact on people's lives. Um, and so it, it had the possibility of being a social enterprise that was also a great, a great business. And there are very few business models that fulfill uh, both of those. And so that was basically the, the spark. And then after that, there became a journey of obviously finding co-founders and building a team and everything else. And I'm happy to jump into whatever part of that you'd like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I feel like when I'm talking to you, we're talking about a part of the internet history of the Middle East. So yeah, I'm we, like, I have goosebumps <laughs> listening to you. So <laughs> it's pretty kick-ass. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, um, so we are the longest running internet business in the region. Yeah. We were one of the first. In fact, we were in Internet City building number one and two as they were popping up. When, when Internet City was announced, we had already formed the team and we were already setting up. And so it was extremely just, it was a real auspicious beginning, I guess. It <laughs> yeah. was a, a wonderful coincidence. We had to wait a year. Um, we got our license. Dubai always is ahead of the curve. So they yeah. were happy to license us before they even had an internet city. And we had to wait a year for the internet city to be constructed. Nice. To move into the first internet city building. So yeah, yeah we've, we've been around for a while. Where does where do you think this um, desire to build something versus be part of someone else's journey? Where do you where do you think that comes from? I'm starting to think it's part of the Ataya DNA, given yeah. you know yourself, Wana <laughs> Badir. Yeah. So I, you know, it's a it's a great question. I, I guess I'm uh, difficult to put one's finger on it, but the reality is, I think we, as far as I remember, I knew I wanted to have my own businesses and my dad did both things um, mm. so he he uh, so my dad's a palestinian refugee yeah. and his palestinian refugees go obviously you you have to get scrappy and yeah. uh, find ways to make things work for you and mm. you can't spend too much time moping around or worrying about what happened and so um 
you know, he, he got on with it. We saw him doing some pretty amazing things. And I think uh, he was a tremendous uh, inspiration to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, um, there's different statistics around the level of success for startups with solo founders and multi-founders. And you decided that you don't want to, seems like, do this on your own. Uh, why did you make that decision? And then how did you go about finding co-founders? So it's a great question. I th- um, one is I realized I didn't have all the skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that if I wanted this to be successful, um, it required a bunch of different skill sets. And everyone had to have a vested interest in it to make it go really, really fast. So mm-hmm. I, I had no desire. Um, to have an employer-employee relationship um, with the founding team. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think for me, it, there wasn't even a consideration of just going it on my own in the beginning. And then how I went about it was, um, who are by far the best people I know in the different fields of expertise that I felt were necessary to make the business a success. So I realized early on that there was uh, the need for great technology and obviously um, internet technology was nascent globally, forget about it in the region, right? The internet switch in 2000 had just come on and getting on to an internet connection could sometimes take you 20 minutes on a dial-up connection. I don't know if you remember that time. Yeah. There was a little modem you'd get, and you'd hear it buzzing like a fax machine, and you'd have to wait and pray for about 15 minutes till you finally connected. And then mm-hmm. to bring down any sort of content took ages. So trying to build at that time when there was almost none of that talent pool, uh, finding a great tech resource was, was important. Uh, I knew marketing and sales would be extremely important parts of what we did. Um, I've always been of the mindset that I want to build businesses that last and that are self-sufficient. And so um, the sales function was very important early on to go off and find ways to monetize and then the marketing to obviously bring uh, people on. And in that time, we had the added challenge of we had to actually bring people onto the internet. Yeah. So it wasn't just, you know, in today's world, if you start something new, you're hoping to bring internet users or app users or mobile users onto your particular platform. At that time, it was, how do I bring people onto the internet? Onto the internet with, because yeah. there was less than 1% internet penetration mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. the region. And so we really had to have a very compelling story mm-hmm. in order to make that happen. And so I went out looking for the best uh, of all worlds and I, I got the best of all worlds and I guess you know a uh, testament to that is that all three of the co-founders continue to do just phenomenal things and uh, yeah. I guess for those who don't know who the co-founders were yeah so were. so from a tech perspective uh, Akram continues to be with me Akram Asaf yeah. and yesterday I was sitting with Noor uh, from Endeavor and yeah. he was saying listen every time I introduce someone to Akram I I say basically this guy could have been the CTO of any company in the world. He really is uh, yeah. just a... He's actually on our advisory board. He's on our yeah. advisory, so yeah. you, get a, you get a flavor. Yeah. And, uh, Mona, who's the founder and CEO of Mom's World, is our head of marketing. Mm. And Mona, I think, was born a marketeer. At, mm. uh, 
and uh, uh, Danny Farha, who runs uh, Beko, is again. We used to joke back then, and it's uh, still probably true. He could sell, you know, snow to the Eskimos, <laughs> 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 and uh, you know, he he headed our our sales function. So it it, it was an and is an all-star yeah. uh, team. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like the, I'm sure you hear all the time, like the PayPal mafia yeah. of the region. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're, yeah. So I think um, as a group, what distinguishes us to a, um, a large degree is we are a pretty low-key group. Yeah. You see a lot of founders who are very much yeah, yeah. trying to be Yeah, I was skeptical if you, would, if you would do this because yeah. I know you're pretty yeah. low-key. Like I, 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 I also I know you're yeah. generous with, with your Thank thoughts. You. So Thank you. Um, yeah, so it's... Uh, so you know, do we hear PayPal mafia a lot? We, we don't. We we don't. We're not sitting there in echo chambers very yeah. often, actually, to to get a lot of that. We sort of sit in our various areas yeah. and uh, fight our way through our daily, uh, yeah. you know, our daily yeah. challenges. So I mean, you know, this uh, idea of travel, the the road less less traveled or yeah. the path less taken, uh, it wouldn't have been obvious in the two thousands that an internet business was the way to start. And so I can only imagine there was a million reasons not to start. So how do you balance conviction and vision with the reality? Yeah, again, a brilliant question. So we we came together as a team um, just as the internet bubble globally was bursting. Exactly. This was June of 2000. <laughs> and so there was no internet in the region. Yeah. And then globally, what had seemed for a while like the road to riches for everyone um, burst. And um, we had a trillion dollars of market cap back then being lost in a few months, which was the single largest correction in dollar value Mm -hmm. ever and in a very, very short period of time. And uh, dot-coms became quickly known as dot-bombs. And here we were, all of us, we had all had successful careers and yeah. other things, yeah. basically leaving our other journeys to set this up in a region that didn't have the internet when the internet had become a swear word. So yeah. it became, uh, it was pretty ridiculous in hindsight. Um, so, you know, a few things helped us, I would say. One, and it still helps us. So why, why are we still around 22 years on um there is an important vision that bound us and there were important values that bound us. And we really felt that this was an opportunity for us to impact the lives of people in the region. And, and that mattered to us and, and still matters to us. Mm. So, you know, what keeps me, I've been involved in so many different businesses. Um, I'm in a position where if I wanted to, I could sort of sit back and have yeah. a much more relaxed life. Mm. Uh, but I love the fact that Every day, you know, we get to touch tens of millions of people's lives and mm. get hundreds of thousands of people uh, employed every year. So that really is uh, is important: is believing in what you're doing, not doing it just for the pot of gold at the end of the mm. the rainbow, but really doing it because you love it, because mm. you feel like you're adding um, value. Uh, I think another thing that helped us was a lot of focus. So we, when we started off in the early internet city buildings, we were in the first internet Mm. city building, and all around us uh, were these dot-coms who had gotten a lot more money than we had gotten. Mm. And and so they had come out just before the bubble had burst, and 
Some of the names, you probably will not recognize them these days, but there was an Arabia.com, which Al-Walid bin Talal, you know, in spite of billions of dollars, claimed that that would be his, uh, by far his most profitable investment and worth more. And that had been financed to the tune of, I think, 25 or $30 million in 2000. Wow. There was PlanetArabia.com, which was also trying to be a portal, which had already also raised over 20. There yeah. was another company called iHilal.com, which was yeah. supposed to be Islamic banking. So there were all these companies that yeah. were really tremendously yeah. financed. I think their challenge was they thought there'd be a very quick pot of gold. Mm. And every time they tried the business model and it wasn't a quick path to that pot of gold, they quickly changed paths. Mm. And so it felt like they were scrambling uh, along pivoting so often that yeah. they never gave any particular um, business a chance. Mm. In our case, we raised what was peanuts in mm. comparison, but we committed early on that that would be the last round we'd ever take. Mm. Uh, so we took $3 million, and that was the last penny that Bait ever took. Mm. Um, and so, you know, when you think about that, uh, the pressure of, listen, yeah. we either get this right or else. Um, who, who gave uh, you that early money? Um, so that early money was given by a fund at that time called the Inter-Arab Fund, which did a whole bunch of other investments that, folded we were actually their only successful investment okay. from, their, <laughs> from their from their entire portfolio we're the only ones who actually retained the capital etc but the fund itself hasn't survived okay. hasn't lived to tell the tale that yeah. we have um so uh, but i mean and you can imagine back yeah. then it was a bit of a nightmare raising mm -hmm. money but 100 um, yeah. and so i guess you didn't necessarily dig in uh, uh, deep enough for me to feel satisfied with the answer, yeah. but all the odds were stacked against you and I'm sure there's a million people telling you no. So how do you, if I'm a founder today saying, do I do this or not? Everyone is telling me not to. Yeah. How do I think about it in my head in terms of, you know what, I should pursue this. So one, why are you doing it? I think the okay, real question, I think point. motivation is important. Yeah, yeah. Why we were doing it was not because you wanted the money, we yeah. wanted to get rich quick. Mm -hmm. We were doing it. Our vision at Bait continues mm -hmm. to be we wanted to build a Middle Eastern institution that is globally recognized and mind respected. What does that mean? We felt the region, the region has amazing people, has amazing talent, yet we didn't have the companies to showcase that. Mm -hmm. Everywhere in the world, people were producing. You'd go to Sweden, which was yeah. a six or eight million person population. They produced an IKEA that became this global organization that everyone recognized that was privately owned. You go to Norway at that time uh, or Finland, there was a Nokia and everyone yeah. in the world was using Nokia. And then you looked at the Middle East and North Africa, we were 300 million people, some of the most talented people mm. on the globe. And you know, beyond a few government organizations that became globally mm. known, there weren't any private enterprises that had gone global and that were respected mm. and admired. So our first mission, our first vision mm. was we wanted to build a great institution. Mm. Our second thing, our mission was to do it by helping people lead better lives. We had an extremely deep conviction in these things. And the third thing is we knew that people needed jobs mm. and we knew uh, that it was a compelling reason to come online. And then candidly, so once we started, we were able to monetize off the bat. I mean, we were cash flow positive within the first 12 months. So we didn't face the type of challenges mm. most entrepreneurs face today. Mm. We hunkered down, mm. realized 
this has to happen. We want it to happen. It will happen. And then we got about making it happen. Yeah. And it happened. <laughs> and, and so once it happens, it's easy yeah. to keep the conviction, right? Yeah, because, yeah, you know, if we failed over and over again, yeah. uh, we'd probably have lost conviction. Yeah. But in, in our case, within a year, we didn't need anyone's money. Yeah. And so once, once you're in that situation, mm. uh, why not why stay not, on? Why not keep going? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really like what you said around knowing why you're doing it and having the conviction around, you know, kind of more having a conviction of the theme that you're pursuing or the goal you're pursuing versus the way the business needs to look because the business, the way the business looks can evolve. But if you have that North star that you're working towards, you don't really feel like you don't feel committed to the current formation of the business model. You're more committed towards the vision and where you're going. And so you have that adaptability inherently built in the way you approach the problem. I think that's super fair. And and we purposely built ourselves. So there's nothing in our vision or mission or values about being a job site. So Mm. we purposely built ourselves in a way that we could expand beyond that. And over the years, Mm. um, we have... But I would say also the flip danger is you just have a North Star and have no commitment to a business model. And I feel that killed a lot of other businesses because they just didn't, they didn't have the resilience to continue on. Every time they got the first punch in the face, uh, they walked away. And in our case, you know, over the last, 20 some years we are continually still getting punched in the face. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's, there's a misconception that, uh, uh, you know, it gets easier with time. I think when I first started, uh, when I left GE to to start Bezat with my two other co-founders, I thought to myself, every year I would say, this year's tough, next year's gonna get easier. And that's just, uh, after year four, I said, you know what? This is like a sprinting marathon. Yeah. <laughs> You're sprinting, <laughs> but you have to sustain, yeah. you have to have the uh, ability to see it through. And so uh, it's, encouraging, daunting to hear that after 20 years, it still doesn't get easier. And and I I think the marathon analogy is very, very apt. So I I don't believe um, entrepreneurship is for sprinters. Um, And and I like the sprinting marathon Mm -hmm. uh, analogy too. And where I failed in my investments Mm -hmm. is when I've invested with uh, entrepreneurs who were sprinters, mm. who felt like, listen, I'm gonna come out of the box really quickly, I'm gonna race like mad, and in two years, it's all gonna be done. And, you know, it's nice if it does get done yeah, in two yeah. years, whatever getting done it yeah, is, but yeah. for the most part, um, I've been obsessed with trying to build businesses that last. Yeah. Uh, and to me, you know, you look at a GE, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that. why aren't we building those businesses? Too many of our businesses mm. are named in, you know, the surnames of someone. So it's Ataya and brothers <laughs> or Ataya <laughs> and sons and whatever. And then if Rabi Ataya gets run over by a truck, the yeah. business is over. Yeah. Or if the sons fight, yeah. the business is over. And meanwhile, you look at, you know, who founded Coca-Cola? Do we, yeah. do we care? Do we yeah. know who founded IBM? Do we yeah. care? Do we know? These mm. are institutions. And so when, when I first left university, I joined the investment bank and, mm. And I saw that world. I saw this world mm. of companies going from startup phase to institutionalization and then having a chance of being longstanding winners. Um, and so my view is always in the region, there's way too much short-termism and that's at our detriment. And 
what I'd love to see a lot more and what I've been focused on is how do I build things that survive me? And so even when I look at Infofort, I did sell Infofort, but Infofort is still operating now 30 years on, mm. doing extremely well, continuing to expand all around the world, still with its own brand name. So that's a lot better than one of those where you flip a business, a year later, whoever's bought it decides, let's hollow it out and fire everyone and yeah. lose their brand name. Yeah. And I, I always feel that's a, that's a shame. While it might enrich one or two people, it doesn't enrich, enrich the community. Um, and, and so is that the driving force? Is that why you want to build something that lasts so it continues to have an impact on society? Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think that would be a, a wonderful legacy, not just for me, but for the region, is to be able to say, listen, we've been able to produce organizations that started here, went global, are global in scope, and ultimately continue to have lives independent of their founders. And I mean, a lot of people don't know this. So we have a lot of brands underneath bait. People mm. are familiar with the job side. Yeah. But for example, one of our leading brands right now is a company called VFairs, which yeah. is wholly owned. Which blew up, by, yeah. Which again, we're 90% of our business is in the US. Yeah. So we're serving a lot of the Fortune 500. Yeah. We're the most highly rated virtual event platform on any of the yeah, it's an uh, amazing public story. platforms. Can you, can you tell that? I mean, I'm familiar because I have a lot of bait-based mentors, yeah. but I'd love for you to kind of share the story of VFairs because there's a lot of lessons for people listening. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so VFairs started off, um, Initially, we were trying to solve our own problem. And the problem was most of the employers and job seekers we were in contact with had at some point attended a physical career fair and hated the experience. Mm. And so we thought, could we create a better experience online with a mm. lot more convenience, a lot greater reach, and a lot more ability for both the employers and jo um, job seekers to reach each other and, and to brand themselves. And so we built this virtual platform. And in the beginning, the model was... Um, it was sort of an old world model where we'd run the event and then we'd sell employer stands mm. and the job seekers would attend virtually for free. And mm. it, think of it as a metaverse solution to uh, virtual events before mm. anyone knew what the word metaverse yeah, was, was, before what, it was, before it was what, coined. What, what year was this? So this was probably eight years ago. Yeah, yeah. This was way before. Yeah, uh, like that. 2014, 15. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then... You know, while while that did well and we evolved our technology, we realized as a business model, it wasn't it wasn't going anywhere. Um, and so, one of our amazing team members um, at some point had this made a personal decision that he wanted to relocate to Canada for immigration purposes, mm. and uh, that's a common theme in our part of the yeah. world. And he didn't want to lose the company and we didn't want to lose him. Um, and so we said, okay, let's think about what we can do with you in Canada mm. um, with, with some of our solutions. And the one solution we started to experiment with that we realized could go international that uh, fairly quickly um, was VFairs. And so he started thinking about how do I market and sell this um, in the U.S.? And in the beginning, the, the primary focus was trying to get a few great customers and, and, and build some trust in it. It was a sort of a solution that came out ahead of its time yeah. and managed to do a really good job of acquiring some pretty serious brand names, mm -hmm. Harvard, Stanford, the United Nations, et cetera, mm -hmm. and running this business 
similar to all of our other businesses mm-hmm. on a cash flow positive basis. Yeah. So the, the mandate was go off and conquer the world, but don't lose me money. Yeah. Uh, and um, so that went well and was growing year on year. And we were probably getting off a small base, 50% annual uh, growth, which, which wasn't bad and profitably so, which was also good. And it was a software as a service model. And anyway, um, COVID hit and obviously all physical events got canceled and suddenly everyone started to look for a virtual uh, platform provider. And uh, suddenly we were drinking out of a fire hose of demand. I mean, we literally, I think during a three month period at some point had 10,000 leads knocking on our door begging for us to serve them (laughs) that we couldn't actually take on because we had taken on so many thousands Mm. of others and Mm. that business grew from a handful of people to over 300 people in the course of uh, a few months and and it was a real acceleration so we went from probably x to at some point we were at 60x Um, i would say in a post-covid world that's come off, but yeah. we're probably still 30x what we were in a pre-COVID world. Yeah, and yeah. pre-COVID, we were still pretty satisfied with the business. Yeah. So it's it's been a it's been an amazing journey. But what's even more satisfying is that, again, we are essentially a MENA-based business exporting technology to the US. Yeah. And if you look at the brand names of the people who are buying yeah. from us, they're all the largest corporate names that everyone recognizes. And so that's... Uh, that's always uh, a wonderful thing to see that we were able to institutionalize and build something that truly expanded beyond our borders. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's an amazing story, especially when you think about starting the business in 2014, where the you know this idea of the metaverse didn't even exist. I can imagine investing in an idea like that. Some executives on the team might think you're crazy. Uh, So I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on how do you think about balancing these crazy ideas with the core? What kind of discussions happen behind closed doors? How do you make sure you listen to all the viewpoints before taking the decision? And it sounds like there's just kind of this continuous theme around having conviction around something Timing might be questionable. Yeah. So I would say in, in our experience, and I don't know if this is unique to our company or not, but um, we have a team of people who is very naturally experimental. And okay. um, what I used to say, and it's still true, but with the founding team, is I loved being in a team where I didn't have to come up with a great idea. Mm. I just had to pick amongst lots of amazing great ideas. Um, And so we are um, a learning organization. We're always thinking, what else can we do? And how else can we leverage what we know? And, you know, the crazier, uh, the better in many cases. Um, so over the years, we've built a lot of different things. A lot of them have failed. And, you know, as we look back as to why they failed, uh, to be honest, it's primarily an ownership issue. It's, are we building a product or are we building a team? And is there someone or that group of people, do they, really f- do they feel real conviction about this particular thing? So... Um, with virtual events, to be candid, it was pretty small. To me, it was a bit out of my line of sight. 
Um, but the gentleman who was in Canada loved it and really wanted to lean into it. And so he had tremendous amount of conviction. Mm. And for me, again, similar to the other story, since it was not burning a hole in my pocket, mm. I was happy to continue mm. along, along the ride. Mm. And so I think where we failed typically is we build this great product and then no one wants to carry that hot potato. And mm. then it fails more out of neglect um, so it's more an execution gap. It's versus, more of an execution mm, gap. And mm. I think, you know, th- there's so much that is still needed in our mm, region. Mm. Um, and and I think there's so much that can be done profitably mm. in cash flow positive. So where mm. you don't need to go out there hat in hand the mm. whole time saying, please give me, mm. uh, give me more. So I, I, I always find the challenge is more about putting the talent pool around it who will yeah. nurture it to success and, and much less about uh, the idea or how crazy it is. Yeah. And how do, how, do we, how do you take a call if you have the conviction around something and then you believe it's an execution gap? How do you take the call on, do I keep investing? Because I believe in the underlying premise on why we started this, but we didn't execute it in the right way. Yeah. So when I started Infofort, um, I was 25 years old and uh, I had no capital of my own. And uh, I went to my dad and uh, and said, Dad, I need money. Easiest place to get money. And <laughs> my dad asked, do you have a business plan? I said, no, but this is a great business. And he said, okay, go off and prepare a business plan. And while he was, I was working with him at that time yeah. and he'd work me from, he'd work me crazy hours and yeah. I was actually living with him. So yeah. I moved back from the States. Yeah. So after a 15 hour day, he'd be like, okay, shower up. We're going out to dinner. And you know, <laughs> at 2 a.m. in the morning, we'd be crawling back in at five in the morning. He'd be like, get out of bed. It's time. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then, you know, by the end of the day, in between, again, the day of work and the next dinner, he'd say, where's the business plan? <laughs> where am I, where, where <laughs> am I going to get this get business plan from? Yeah. So I eventually gave him the business plan. And uh, upon giving it to him, he's like, okay, how much money do you need? And I threw out to some, he's like, okay, here's the check. I'm like, what about the business plan? To which, you know, his response was, the business plan has nothing to do with me. It's for me to know that you've prepared for your business. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're going to get X amount of money from me in my lifetime. Yeah. yeah. So you've just drawn down from it. <laughs> be, <taken> in advance. <laughs> be, be aware of that. Yeah. Now, I think, you know, the, the philosophy that I learned from him is that starting a business, and, and this is the approach I keep on taking, should be like, and I'm not a gambler, yeah, so yeah, I don't go to casinos, yeah, yeah, but yeah. the way I understand it is uh, when you go to a casino, you should say, this is the amount of money I'm going with. And you shouldn't feel that you have an ATM card in your pocket because the worst gamblers are the ones who keep on going back and drawing down, thinking the next drawdown is suddenly going to make them a success. So the way I approached Infoford, the way I approached Bait, the way I approach most businesses I start off is I basically say, what is the sum of money that you need in order to get this thing profitable and cash flow positive? That's what you're going to get. And if you're able to get where you need to at that stage, great. And then if you're not able to get to where you need to, we're gonna, we're gonna turn off the lights. Mm. Once it gets to that stage, you can draw down more if you want to, but mm. not if you don't hit that. So if you're at cash flow positive mm. and suddenly there's a massive amount of demand coming your way mm. and you need to invest a few million more dollars in order to service that demand, mm. well, that's, 
that's automatic return on yeah. investment. Yeah. But if you've burnt you know, a $5 million hole already, and, mm. you know, the demand's close to zero, and you're saying, listen, I want to draw down some more because mm. the next $5 million is yeah. going to get me there. My philosophy has been, we're done with this bet, let's move mm. on to the next one. Mm. I find the discipline of putting that line in the sand is extremely important because it just keeps things real, right? Mm. Everyone mm. knows what they're running towards and everyone understands what the uh, ramifications are if if they miss and the ramifications are the, the project folds yeah and for me i just have to go in there with the assumption that i'm making bet sizes that i'm willing to lose mm. uh, so mm. i'm going to the casino table with playing money yeah um you know i'm still going to be able to put my kids through school <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if if this particular hand of blackjack or this little roll of the roulette table doesn't work yeah. for me that's that's yeah. the way i think about it yeah, uh, I love that. And that's that. very different yeah. than most. I, I mean, in, no, no, in the last 20 years, it, it's mean, been a roulette. You know, everyone's drawing down continually. Yeah. Uh, so it's a different philosophy than what's mostly gone yeah. out there, but it's worked for us. Yeah, I mean, the chickens have come home to roost now, yeah. right? Yeah. On on that philosophy of spend at all costs, growth yeah. at all costs, uh, uh, cash flow positive and profitability are in fashion again. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> the, the long yeah. tested uh, the, the, underlying fundamentals of business are back in fashion. Yeah, there's the old adage even a broken clock is right two times a day. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> you know, who, who's right and who's wrong, we don't know. But at least, yes, profitability is a theme again. And yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah, th- there was this thing that in my personal life started shaping my investment philosophy. And I think you're kind of talking about it in a business context. It was in a book called The Psychology of Money. And one of the things the author talks about is any bet that takes you where can wipe you out is not a bet worth taking. Yeah. Even if there's a 10% probability or 80% probability of upside, it's just not worth taking. Yeah given how long it took you to accumulate everything you've accumulated. So what's it like to start a business? Co-founders are kind of the foundation and they're really a support network. It's like your family uh, and then have co-founders kind of go on to do their own things. What's that experience like? It's a great question again. Um, so we have, we're again, four co-founders. So two of us are still in the business, yeah. which 22 years on isn't bad. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> uh, so I think, you know, um, all the two who are not in the business, mm. again, different stories with different personal. Mm. So in Mona's mm. case, for example, uh, Mona uh, uh, got pregnant, had her first two kids were twins mm. and so that became a handful and she had to take some time off work to yeah. to deal with that uh, she came back to work and shortly thereafter she had uh, another child um, and then we realized listen the her interests are a lot more now about that mm. and so she stayed as part of the bait journey. So mm. mom's world was birthed at the bait. It okay. was incubated in bait. And okay. Akram and I, from the start, were founders and shareholders and board members of mom's world and continue to be founders and shareholders and board members okay. of mom's world all the way to um, 
to exit. Yeah. So th- th- it wasn't like someone had left the family. Th- yeah. th- it's sort of like we had children. And we're yeah. always in this process of producing yeah. uh, children. So again, yeah. bait to us is a platform that continues to spark uh, mm-hmm. new exciting stuff. And then uh, I think in, in Danny's case, it was a bit more difficult. I think er- early on, you know, he had some personal things he had to deal with, mm-hmm. had to take some time off. And then mm-hmm. after a while of him taking time off, and mm. at which point he wasn't doing anything else. The business sort of had readjusted mm. and yeah. he did his own internal exploration. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's neither easy nor difficult. Mm. It's, you know, there's an emotional aspect to it. So mm. there's certainly, you love to have these people around and you enjoy it. But early on, again, our vision was about creating an institution that didn't require us. So I keep on saying, mm. my job is to get myself out of a job. Yeah. Um, at some point several years ago, we actually, Akram and I did, we had a bunch of divisions and gave each one of the divisions uh, a GM and we sort of took a much more backseat mm. uh, role. Unfortunately, we didn't get great results doing it that mm. way. It was a bit more of an abdication mm. than it was a a good handover and so we saw significant downturns in a lot of our key metrics Mm. uh, and and we steered clear because we didn't want to become overbearing because Mm. the vision was we wanted to be able to have this business survive Mm. us Uh, we've since rolled back our sleeves we've adjusted the ship again Mm. and we're now again trying to do this slow more gradually you know move out and and not to say not be involved in the business, but then be involved much more on the ideation mm. and the continuing to find new horizons mm. rather than mm. on any sort of day-to-day mm. uh, oversight. So, so it's a journey. I think yeah. you know there, there is no expectation that that partnership is going to be forever and ever and ever. The hope is the business stays forever and ever mm. and ever, mm. and then people get to do what they want with yeah. that business for from their personal perspectives. Yeah. How how do you find the balance between? So I like what you said, and you know, uh, I definitely see it as someone who has, like I said, some some integration or connection with bait people. This idea of your business is constantly delivering babies. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you drive that culture? How do you uh, find those ideas? Yeah, and that's also um, changed over the years. So in in the first eight years, we were entirely focused on being focused because we had seen too many failures around us from people not being focused. Mm. And it was such a tough journey um, just managing growth. We were growing in the first eight years. Our compounded annual growth rate was over 100% and just maintaining that across a region which is challenging in a pretty nascent environment. Um, But then when the 2009 financial, 2008 financial crisis hit, um, we realized we had a lot of capital, we had a lot of know-how, and we could apply that to other things. So it was a bit of a breather for us. And so at that stage, I actually took someone from the team and I basically said, listen, you're now the director of strategic initiatives, your job is to actually look for 
new business models to for us to invest in. So that was one way of doing it. Okay. So so almost like the prerequisite to being able to do this was build a core that can sustain. Yeah. We need to make sure that our uh, foundation was strong. Mm -hmm. And every time someone wanted to go away from the foundation. Now, there were adjacents that were also, so that was to look at non-adjacent opportunities. There were adjacent opportunities that we were also jumping into. So one example, one of our key revenue lines right now is we have a leading applicant tracking system solution called Mm -hmm. Talentera. Mm -hmm. We serve uh, hundreds of companies across the region, essentially Mm -hmm. where their career sites. Mm So that was that was a quick adjacency. It's yeah. the same customer base. It's pretty much the same um, technology. It's about white labeling, mm. bait.com. Mm. Mm. And that was basically, you know, it's not the job site. Mm. Mm. The ATS business is an industry in and of itself, but that didn't require too much imagination. Yeah. So the adjacencies continue to grow out from listening to customers mm. and saying, mm. what do you guys need? Mm. And then the non-adjacent stuff, you just have to figure out, okay, am I... Do I have enough capital? Do I have enough people where I can basically take some people and roll them out and say, mm-hmm. go off? And the key with the non-adjacent stuff, so for example, we have an auto portal called Yella Motor. I mean, that's yeah. not really very adjacent at all, yeah, and that yeah, requires yeah. its own capital, yeah. et cetera. Um, so the non-adjacent stuff, it's really about saying, I I have capital and I'm willing to continue you know, to support this as long yeah. as it shows promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's about having a core that can stand on its own feet. Yeah, and then finding uh, finding the right team members to basically own that and who have a great deal of passion uh, towards the idea. It, towards the idea, yeah. because again, it's it's their job to make sure it sustains itself. Yeah. And then looking over their shoulder to the extent that they're continuing to manage a healthy culture and they're building long termism. Not, mm. not this short-term mm. view. One thing that uh, is clear is anyone who comes through Bait has some, well, let's say the, the majority of people I've spoken to who, who have spent a meaningful time at Bait have a very similar, come have a specific pedigree, you know, um, and I think that's a testament to you and the founding team. How do you build a culture that lasts, a company that lasts. So I'm, I'm glad you say that because, I, you, know, <laughs> you know, as as we look in, we're always asking ourselves, are we building that pedigree or yeah. not? And, yeah. you know, we're obviously very self-critical and we always feel we can do a lot better than, than we're doing. You, sorry, just on that, I always say uh, a hungry entrepreneur is like a like in Bladna, the, the donkey that's chasing the carrot, yeah. right? Yeah. Never gets to the carrot, <laughs> might, might get a bite. Yeah. Yeah. So being an entrepreneur, hungry entrepreneur is exactly it's like that. that. You're yeah. always trying to pursue that objective <laughs> yeah. and you're not quite sure if you're there. So um, listen, and I, I continue to believe that the key to our uh, existence today is that we have this mission and vision and values and their... Um, they're they're the right ones and we hire for those we interview for those we hire for those we assess regularly on those and anyone who's been through bait will tell you that we tell people over and over again we will never terminate you uh, uh, quickly on any performance issue so Mm. you can fail a month the second month Mm. the third month Mm. we tend to be pretty patient and very helpful 
but if someone um, doesn't live the values, um, we we will terminate that relationship very very quickly. Mm. So I care a lot um, that we have a positive environment where people are working towards a common objective and we actually enjoy working with each other mm. and that we respect each other as, as people. Mm. I've never been interested in building this uh, cowboy culture where mm. everyone does whatever it takes to get the bottom mm. dollar or this culture mm. where everyone's at each other's necks. I worked in investment banking. It was a very unhealthy culture. Yeah. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to steer clear from that. And part of that is, again, I wanted to build something that lasts. And I mm. felt if people are similar in their mindsets and their outlooks and really care about serving the world around them, uh, then we have a much, it's going to be a much more fulfilling place to be at. Mm. And how do you communicate and drive that at scale? So it's the interviewing process, the assessment process. How about, I guess, what else? Yeah, so... Uh, Candidly, it's 22 years on, mm. and perhaps even today, over 60% of onboard people onboarded at BAIT, I actually give a two-hour uh, training on the onboarding on vision, mission, and values. Mm, mm. So that's just, I make it super clear mm, mm. that that is the single most important thing mm. um, we care about. And then everything in the organization is built to echo that. So mm. we have these recognition walls. They mm. used to be physical, now mm. they're virtual yeah. walls where when anyone recognizes anyone for at bait, mm. and these things are super active, mm. they're using the language of the values. Mm. So mm. they'll mm. say, you know what, I, I'd like to recognize Tara because mm. Tara showed mm. that he took personal responsibility for improving the world around him, which is, Today, a lot of companies call that be the CEO of something, and yeah. then they'll describe how they did that. And and so it pervades, it even pervades our office spaces where mm. uh, those values and the vision mission are mm. actually hung up on every wall in mm. every one of our offices. So they're very much in people's face. Mm. Mm. And, and uh, in 2008, when we had that economic slowdown, what we woke up to was we had grown tremendously but our culture had gotten very sick. Mm. And and that allowed us to recalibrate and build that up. Mm. Um, and then in when I talk about, again, we at some point abdicated responsibility. Mm, mm, mm. Um, in the end, the way we, beyond the actual performance numbers coming down, when we realized we really had to jump into the organization was we demanded from the managers that they do uh, an engagement survey of the employees mm. and we had had the lowest engagement in the company's history. So uh, that was the That was the wake-up call yeah. that, you know what, yeah. these managers don't have even the buy-in mm. of, uh, of their team mm -hmm. and so there's no way. And over time, if you ask me, uh, so this is something that I've learned, is if you want the greatest leading indicator uh, of a business's success, uh, get a management 360. Yeah. Um, if yeah. the reports say their manager is great, that's a great leading indicator that your business is about to do very well. Mm. If they say things are bad with the manager, even though the numbers look good, be sure that within the next three to six months, your numbers are about to take a nosedive. Mm. Um, you talked about... Uh, 
we were talking about that earlier now uh, about getting punched in the face. Uh, I can imagine a big punch in the face would have been LinkedIn saying we're going to build something meaningful in this market. Mm. And I can imagine a lot of people saying, oh, that's the end of fate, job boards at least. And so I'd love to kind of hear the story of how you fought off to a large sure. extent, uh, I even know from a pricing perspective, you were never bait was never the cheapest option. So I'm talking about LinkedIn on one side, but then obviously you had an influx of other players who were cheaper. And so, what have you learned about fighting competition? Yeah, so I I would say uh, candidly, and I'm not. Uh, this is not marketing talk. The uh, competition has never been. Um, the biggest punch in the face. Competition takes time to ramp up, time to build, mm. time to develop uh, a brand name. And so, you know, the punch in the face is this thing that comes out of nowhere, hits sure. you, and you feel okay. like you're bloody the nose. You're like, where did this come out yeah. from? And we've had a lot of those. And, yeah. and, and they're, they're a lot scarier, mm. candidly, because, mm-hmm. you know, the, and in our part of the world, oftentimes uh, punches in the face come from government. Government mm. regulation changes mm. so mm. often. Mm. And when you're across the region, so we've had in random places overnight, you know, someone come and say, we're shutting down your operations in country X. And you're like, wait, or a ISP, mm. you know, the country's the, uh, proxy basically shutting us down in that country altogether. And mm. so those are punches in the face because mm. they come out of nowhere. and then yeah. <laughs> You're never quite sure how to yeah. react to them. And they, they could potentially be game ending, right? Yeah. And, and in a pretty instantaneous way. So if a government decides to shut you down, um, and I, I think, was, I mean, maybe this will, hopefully this will be the only time I quote Mike Tyson, but I think yeah. he said everyone has a plan yeah, until they get punched punch in the, the face. face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, uh, one punch in the face at some point in, uh, we were in Saudi and had just arrived in and both managers for Infofort and Bait lived in the same compound and arrived and the compound I was in was attacked while I was mm-hmm. there and mm-hmm. building collapsed on top of me. And mm-hmm. I mean, it was, that's a punch in the face. So, yeah, yeah. so I, uh, not, not to take away from competition, yeah, but yeah. competition is this sort of, you know, you're going, uh, you're getting pricked uh, <laughs> repetitively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I would say, listen, we, um, from the beginning, we've had different types of competition. We've had local players who are very much focused on a particular city or segment. Mm. So there'd be someone who'd say, listen, I'm focused on the UAE only, or I'm focused on entry-level people only, or CEOs, etc." And then we've had global competition. So the first time we got a big global competition uh, appear on our doorstep is at some point Monster, uh, which I mentioned yeah. had inspired yeah. me. Monster was an S&P 500 company. It was massive. It was generating tremendous profit. The owner was a, uh, you know, one of the wealthiest men in the United States, and they uh, had interest in acquiring Bait. And yeah. so we went through a discussion, yeah. and we arrived at a valuation, and then uh, for them to buy minority interest at mm. that stage, and then uh, we we walked away from the deal. And I think their reaction was, okay, you're going to walk away from the deal. We're going to use that nice sum of money that we would have otherwise used to buy a minority interest in you now to directly compete with you. And we're going to do it out of our India operations, which are the resources back then were cents on the dollar on what we had to spend. 
And so that was very scary because mm. you suddenly had, we knew what sort of amounts of money they were going to put into it. Mm. They were a global mammoth that mm. seemed to have mm. unlimited sources of capital. Um, and so what we learned early on with them was the reason we had picked the model, one of the reasons that we liked jobs a lot was uh, we felt jobs were a very localized um, type of business. Mm. A monster everywhere it was successful had to have local sales teams on the ground. Mm. It had to deal with the local regulations. Building out local sales teams in this region where licensing back then could take you two or three years to get mm. a license and most of the cities couldn't even give you as an international investor mm. licensing. We realized they were going to be uh, years away and we realized as a global player they were going to have a really difficult time doing the type of things that in the region were necessary, mm. such as filtering by gender, by nationality, by age. In this part of the world, sometimes that's regulation, right? Yeah. You can't get a visa today for X nationality, therefore you need to filter by that. Mm. And uh, Monster didn't even have a nationality filter yeah. back then. So we learned hyper-localization is important. And candidly, the same was true with, with LinkedIn and others. So LinkedIn has its benefits and I won't take anything away from them. But to this date, we continue to have a larger database base of talent interested in working in the region than they do. The context of everyone in bait is a job context. It's not, it's not a social platform yeah. with a job aspect. You're mm. actually coming in there specifically for jobs. Um, and the tools are very focused on on yeah. what it takes in this region to work. So the fact that you can search in Arabic or English, you can search with all the peculiarities required in the region. Um, so I think all of that has helped us, you know, as long as we understand our region, what our region wants, um, we continue to have, have an advantage. Uh, they are obviously formidable. Um, a lot of the small players yeah. have done great jobs. And to a large degree, it's become, when we started, it was a very blue ocean. Mm. It's a lot less fun operating a red ocean. So it's not necessarily that yeah. a LinkedIn or a local competitor is a part the mm. problem in particular. Mm. The biggest problem is yeah. it became a very hot industry at some mm. point, And suddenly there were dozens of players appearing out of the woodwork. Yeah. And each of them would... You know, it was sort of death by a thousand cuts, yeah. much more than a, you know someone chopping your head off. Yeah. Um, the reality is the vast majority of these guys now have fallen out. Yeah. So it's become a lot cleaner of a market. Mm. There aren't that many competitors and uh, people have moved on. Uh, mm. they, they like, you know, the, the fashion du jour seems to be fintech. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so job sites now are, are totally unsexy yeah. and that's been good for us. So I think we're, we're seeing a nice resurgence as, as things get cleaner again. Yeah. We were talking about this being a marathon. Uh, what have you done to keep running the marathon? Yeah, so I think one is obviously staying f physically mm. uh, uh, fit, right? Mm. Uh, so I uh, was that something you always had, or something you? It's something I always time? had, okay. and I think if I didn't have, it would have been a, yeah. a massive issue. So mm. I've always been um, someone who needs their physical activity, mm. and it just having every single day an hour or a couple of hours where you release it's it's, yeah. it's a form of meditation obviously yeah. and it's uh, it's brilliant you know i'm i'm blessed to have most of my family i have my parents all of my siblings i've got my kids all mm -hmm. in dubai i have a very active social life here so i'm not living the life of when i was a 20 year old i was doing 
18 hour days yeah. and I was uh, in the first two years of bait I had both bait and info for I was operating both at the oh, same wow. time okay. I was out of the country for 330 days of the year and my average stay in a particular place was three days mm. I don't do that anymore yeah. you know I, uh, Emirates keeps on downgrading my <laughs> which is <laughs> you know uh, I remember when I left GE you know I'd get to that platinum within like April yeah. <laughs> and you know my first reaction when I started getting downgraded was to be upset yeah. but then I realized that this is what I had always wanted yeah. was to to yeah. just be to a regular silver blue guy yeah, yeah, <laughs> and enjoy one's life um, so so I feel I, I've got a I've got a balanced mm. uh, life mm. I've got a big team of great people mm. um, I can uh, lean in or pull back as I want to I think that's one of the joys of entrepreneurship mm. Um, over time, uh, we've cleaned up our cap table entirely, mm. so I'm not beholden to anyone else. It's it's a lot easier when you're running to your own expectations than yeah. it is to run to someone else's expectations. Yeah. There's no one's telling me you have to grow 30% a year yeah. or make X margins or whatever. Yeah. I wake up and I decide, okay, what is the trade-off I want today to do whatever. Very good. And, and so all of these things are helpful to keep me going. And I'm surrounded by really smart people who mm. are continually inventive and coming up with other exciting stuff. Mm. So there's mm. not, uh, so what more can someone ask for, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the business is doing well, alhamdulillah. Uh, there's a lot to continually learn. We're mm. in the industry, both you and I, that uh, doesn't sit still for a day. So it's 100%. not, with Infoport, it got pretty boring pretty quickly. Mm. It was storing boxes of files on yeah. shelves with with anything tech empowered the moment you think you've got your grasp on it the whole uh, ground underneath you moves yeah there's clearly this from from when i first met you i remember we we approached you to talk about bezat and you said and that and so i'd say there's three been three iterations of bezat where where I, I I say this might be the last iteration, but I highly doubt that. <laughs> I remember iteration number one, you said uh, two things to us that stuck in my mind. You said, you guys can build something bigger. You're dreaming too small. And then you talked about blue ocean, red ocean. Um, and in that kind of, I went and looked up the book and eventually read it. And so it's clear that my uh, perception is that you're a voracious reader. Yeah. Uh, and so... I'd love to kind of dig into how do you learn, how do you continue to stay ahead of the curve? So so reading is super important for me. Mm. I, I love I love it. It's a part of me. And similar to the, the sport part, yeah. if there's a day where I'm not reading a lot, it's a, it's an issue. And I like reading everything, to be honest. Mm. I, I like reading sci-fi and I like reading, you know, sappy, soppy fiction. And yeah. I like reading uh, all these business books yeah. and self-help books. Um, and and so that's one way of learning. Uh, I'm a member of the YPO, yeah. and that's been very useful. Particularly, this thing called the forum. The forum is uh, yeah, I'm YPO. Of, yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah. So the, the forum is wonderful because uh, my forum, in particular, uh, has the most inspiring uh, uh, forum uh, mates who really. Uh, just every time anyone brings up a challenge or an issue, you get such 
great perspectives mm. and personal experiences mm. and learning from other people's experiences is always tremendously mm. Uh, mm. valuable and they're all super successful. Mm. And so I'm always awed by the way they think and the things they've done and that's mm. that's always uh, wonderful. And then over the years, another way that I've 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 gone back to universities at time and taken small courses here and mm. there just mm. because uh, I enjoy that. Um, and you know, I, I look at my learning, and then I look at someone like Akram as a CTO and his learning. So what's what I love about my learning is it's all over the place, it's scattershot, but I get a lot of different inspiration from a lot of different things. Um, someone like Akram is always doing this really hardcore getting to this technology. <laughs> and then, you know, he'll download this programming environment and really roll up his sleeves and getting his hands into it. And I, and I love that he still has, uh, again, the patience and the yeah. endurance to do that after yeah. so many years. Yeah. And he still has this ability to inspire every tech member of any team. And uh, so... But I guess key to anyone's well-being and long-term success is that that learning journey doesn't end. I'd, I'd yeah. love to hear what you're doing or what you're yeah. currently even reading because I'm always looking for a, for a good book yeah, recommendation. I was about to ask you what, what, what books have really recently shaped the way you think about running the organization or business. Yeah, so uh, I mean, uh, I, I go on thematic r reading uh, uh, periods. Uh, my most recent theme had nothing to do with anything to do with business. I uh, I went down this route of for months reading everything I could about the nonviolent movement, and I read all of Gandhi's speeches, all of his letters, uh, uh, and then went into a whole bunch of other current stuff about nonviolence. And so, I mean, why I can speak about it at a different time, but I, I think from a business perspective. Um, I'll say this, I think candidly, if you're a CEO or a founder, um, your job is to continually find inspiration in different things that you can bring back and, and improve your business with. And that inspiration sometimes is in the arts, right? It's about mm. making your products more aesthetically pleasing, more desirable. Mm. It's in the humanities, it's an understanding about um, how people think and what makes them attracted yeah. to things and how they associate with each other. It's in the sciences. And so I, I, I find that if someone just tells me they're reading just business books, they're probably not they're getting the full mm. uh, set of skills that, uh, that they need. Um, mm. One thing that I read on my most recent vacation, which I enjoyed, was something called Stolen Focus, which was basically about how our uh, devices are uh, making us, for lack of a better word, dumber mm -hmm. than what we mm -hmm. could do about it. Yeah. And I found it to be an extremely well-written book. Mm -hmm. I tried to convince all of my uh, teen kids and nephews and nieces to read it because uh, you know that generation has a very difficult time getting say, away from their devices. You'll, you'll probably get them to read it if it turned into a TikTok <laughs> and they could consume it. I, I was very unsuccessful <laughs> in spite of, I mean, they started to mock me every time they'd see me. They're like, yeah, yeah, we have to read Stolen Focus and, and then they would do nothing about it. But yeah. yeah. Um, you know, this we could do this for probably days. Uh, you asked me how do I learn uh, 
there's many different aspects, but selfishly, one of the reasons I started the podcast was uh, for my own benefit, um, learning from other people's experiences and then helping everyone else who listens to this show learn from the conversation. And so uh, there's a couple of things I heard you say today. Uh, I heard you talk about the need to find complementary talent, whether it's in a co-founder or an executive team. Um, uh, This idea of you know, committing to never raise again, I think is uh, uh, a lost art uh, of business. And, uh, you know, that's definitely something to think about. Uh, Know why you're doing something when you're starting a business. What's your big why will help sustain uh, the drive. Uh, Committing upfront to the investment you're willing to put in into something that discipline is key. I like this idea of in the early days, focus on being focused uh, before you start pursuing other opportunities. The idea that this manager 360 is a, is a leading indicator on uh, the sustainability of a team or a business and the need for a CEO or co-founder to find inspiration uh, in different things and bring that back to the business. I have to say this is kind of the longest list of uh, things I'm taking away from, from uh, a podcast so far. So I really appreciate you taking the time. It's uh, been a huge honor and, and fun. To I do this. It's been very fun for me and I want to thank you for it. And you're, you're a natural at this. I'm very, very impressed. Thank you. And, uh, well done. Thank you. And uh, yeah, you guys also inspire us when you talk about talent. I'm always very impressed by what you guys are doing at Bezat. And I always find the people that come through your organization are always brilliant. And I love the fact that uh, again, you and your journey have been able to, to pivot and to grow. And I, also do hope and believe that this version 3.0 is inshallah the, the big one for Allah thank you very much thanks thanks